Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we're considering new takes on a classic. When Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843, he could not have imagined today's technology. Yet... He might well have marveled at how our contemporary creatives have adapted his story. Later, we'll hear about the Alliance Theater staging of A Christmas Carol as a drive-in live radio play. First, Terminus Modern Ballet Theater has a current take on timeless themes from Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. Marley Was Dead to Begin With is a new work created especially for film by Terminus resident choreographer and dancer Heath Gill. He joins us now via Zoom, along with composer Jacob Bryan Smith, who created the score. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So glad to be back on. Well, this is a marvelous piece, and I was hoping we could begin with the title. Please tell us about the significance of Marley Was Dead to begin with. It's an interesting title. Uh, as we were creating this work that... Uh, we've really made the decision to make Marley a very prominent character in our story. There's this wonderful very first sentence, Marley was dead to begin with. And Dickens goes on about how just important that is to the story. You have to understand Marley was dead. That's the most important thing you need to know. And it goes on about it for paragraphs. So we're like, that has a nice ring to it. There's something there. <laughs> Heath, what was it like choreographing a piece for screen rather than stage. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about film is that you get to direct the audience's eye where you want it to be. So much in theater where we're trying to sculpt our show, whether it's via lighting or maybe how much movement someone has to, to really bring the focal point where you want it. But with film, you get to have this wonderful option for extra layers of subtlety. It's a fun medium. I, I'm new to it. You know, of course, we're, we're a live performance show, typically, uh, and that's our craft. But we have just like such an awesome team that was able to brainstorm this whole thing out and how it can be not just a live show on film, but give that audience viewer the best seat in the house. They're getting the, most, the best experience. It is very cinematic and there's spoken dialogue in your work. What made you decide to include voiceover? That's something, as a choreographer, I've been experimenting with for a long time now. There's something really wonderful about speech. It, it, it is its own kind of music. There's a cadence. There's an intention. There, there's a musicality in the way we speak, all the different languages in the world. And it, it's fascinating, and I enjoy it. it, it evokes such imagery for me. 
it gives me this wonderful jumping off point to start to bring to life. <laughs> well, I believe more than ever that dancers, really good dancers, are superb storytellers. And that has been proven time and again with Terminus. How do you use dance to explore the friendships and lives of the characters? Well, first off, I think dance has a kind of unique ability to take a simple idea and kind of grow it. And I think dance, especially contemporary dance, really thrives uh, when you can take an idea and grow it in an abstract, surreal way. But also what I love about this work in particular is we're marrying those concepts with a more concrete narrative and kind of jumping back and forth, movement language-wise, score-wise, and just the, the whole concept jumps back and forth between something that feels very tangible that you could almost touch, that you almost recognize, like a theater or a, a movie presentation. And then it that gives us our grounding to pull back into these more surreal moments, just like in a musical, uh, when something builds up to a point that you can't explain in words and you have to sing it. Hmm. That's what we're doing with dance in this work. Jacob, after watching the film, I was amazed to read that you just graduated from college. How did this collaboration with Terminus come about? It was fascinating. Terminus had been looking for, for finding a new work and getting a, a, a commissioning original music for, for some new piece. And the idea hadn't really been seeded. And so um, I heard through a very, very close family friend of mine, Jane Blunt, that they were looking for it. And so I submitted my name. Uh, and in the summer, I met up with um, Heath and John Welker who, to discuss you know, a collaborative idea. And immediately Heath and I hit it off. Um, we started talking about this TED talk that we both fell in love with that Heath had actually done a dance piece to. And we nerded out about that for like maybe an hour. And I think right afterwards we knew that this was, this was gonna be good. So a few weeks later, they, they brought me aboard and Heath mailed me um, the original Dickens text of A Christmas Carol and was like, what can we do with this? <laughs> um, and I, I know, you know, we received it. I grew up Jewish, so I actually didn't know the story very well. So taking the text at face value rather than like a nostalgic purpose, there was so much buried in the text that kind of blew me away. And as we started discussing it and, and finding things, we just kind of got carried away and took it into some really, really exciting directions that um, were just so, so incredible. And I was so honored to have joined them. I come from a musical theater background specifically. So coming into the world of dance was just so, so powerful. And I feel like I've fallen madly in love with a new art form. Oh, wow. Well, you had wonderful training at the University of Michigan. I do. <laughs> had you written for dance before? Not like this to any degree. One of my part-time jobs at Michigan was I played improv piano for our ballet classes for two years. Mm. So I, I every morning would just come in at 8.30 a.m. and would just play for an hour and a half, just whatever came to my brain. And so I started understanding the lingo and the dialogue and, and kind of how dance is described by instructor to students. And so taking that really, really helped me have that dialogue and discussion with Heath as we were describing what we wanted this world to look and sound like. Heath, could you believe you were dealing with such a young musician? I mean, I, I feel so lucky to have discovered Jacob when we did and just at all. <laughs> the, uh, the way we get to communicate is so fluid. Like, I, I, I can be the most indescriptive person, and Jacob knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> And, and also his, his background playing for dance, uh, it, it, it helps him understand what I'm, I'm trying to shape as well so much more. And just that, that line of communication, we have so much shared interest. There's so much through this process. We were referencing either favorite TV shows or movies or, or just moments from uh, different stories that we love. And 
that we're like, oh, you love that movie too? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, we would get so caught up in those moments. And I, I think the friendship that grew out of this whole creation is very much infused itself into this work. Absolutely. The production opens with a beautiful scene of lanterns flickering, very much evoking the Victorian era of a Christmas carol. Jacob, would you talk about the music we hear in the background? Absolutely. It was really fascinating when we first started to try to figure out what this piece sounded like. We played around with modernizing the tale, with keeping it incredibly Victorian, trying to evoke a very specific sound for the piece. And what we realized, especially in the text, was half of the piece exists in in this reality, in this uh, Victorian sort of piano-centric reality that feels very almost prim and proper. And the other half of it is this very spiritual, ethereal plane. And so developing the sound for the two different worlds was was so fascinating. So we begin our tale in the ethereal plane and the, the realm of spirits, as we call it in the context of the show. And what was so satisfying in writing a score like this was that I got to, at later times, hit these incredibly exciting orchestral moments with horns and strings and piano flurries all over the place. especially in the beginning, so much of the soundscape is um, screams that have been distorted into creating bass moans and, and uh, synths and all sorts of spatial soundscapes um, that were so interesting to play with. Working with Heath to choreograph exactly where the camera was going on this specific specific heartbeat, or this specific uh, we called a lot of them whooshes, <laughs> because the whooshes would lead us into our next image. And so setting the tone at the beginning of the piece with that sort of a soundscape, and then breaking into almost your traditional Christmas carol, we thought was really exciting to show like we're really going to be hitting both aspects of what music and sound can mean in a world like this. Very much so. Uh, the music you wrote to accompany the duet with Bell and Scrooge is a waltz, something very Tchaikovsky-like that would have been popular at the time. So the duet with Tiny Tim and his father is splendid.
was hoping, Heath, that you would talk a bit about your choreography for Mr. Scrooge. How does your dance extend the dialogue spoken? Through much of this work, uh, we're, we're very much utilizing text that grew right out of the original uh, Dickens novel. And we've, we've taken that and reshaped it for the story we're trying to tell. And as far as like movement goes, I, we, we talk about this often as almost our live action cartoon. So when we're, we're dancing along to this text, they're really embodying those words and the intention. And it, it becomes this exaggerated body language thing that I think once you settle into it, it really is like watching a new cartoon. You know, at first you're like figuring out the art style and then you settle in, you're like, I totally get this. <laughs> this, this feels like they're speaking to me now. And that, that's my hope with that movement. Uh, and for Scrooge in particular, it's, it's trying to find that way, especially in the beginning parts of the work where he really feels disgruntled and just everything is something that puts him on edge, uncomfortable, just leave me alone. And, and it's great to see kind of through the work as that shell starts to evaporate and he starts to open up uh, as many of us know in the story that he begins to be more accepting of these ideas mm -hmm. that are being pitched to him throughout the narrative and ready to accept them and how his body language can change within that. Jacob, you mentioned the range of musical styles in the score you wrote for this work. The music is electronic and the dialogue distorted at a turning point in this story. And Heath, a very powerful part of the work occurs with glancing at the clock on the clock. Would you describe that part? The glancing at the clock, that's, it's one of our first bits in what we uh, refer to in our story as the replay, and I'll, I'll kind of skirt that so I don't ruin anything. But the idea here is, is like I was mentioning earlier, of, of digging in a little bit on how can, how can we grow this story in that surreal way to really dig in on the, the kernel of the ideas that were presented and grow them in a way that we feel more connected to them. And this, this glancing at the clock on the clock is the, the beginning of that kind of warping, that strangeness that starts to take over our, our story and run away with it. And uh, throughout this work, I, I think we're kind of genre-defying both in our music and our dance. I mean, uh, from a dance perspective, I pull from, you know, that very body language centric movement that I've been speaking of that almost feels like a cartoon. And then other things are very ballet driven. And then other things are more the contemporary dance world. And this glancing at the clock moment is definitely more that contemporary dance world. And it, it's a place where I, I remember when we were talking about the music, Jacob and I, he let his imagination run because this, this section could be wild. <laughs> it absolutely had the license to be wild. We went there and it's so much fun. I love the way it turned out. It almost gets into this like rock concert moment at the end. Yeah, it's <laughs> it the just only feels part so of right. the show where an electric guitar starts coming in and shredding in the middle of it. <laughs> it is very effective. <laughs> I look forward, we all look forward to the end of this plague and when we can gather together again to experience theater and dance and music live together. This is such an effective film work you have created. Do you think that even 
after the pandemic is over, you might still want to choreograph for film? Well, I think we've we've opened a wonderful world of study for ourselves. And, you know, dance on film is something that hasn't been explored as much as other mediums. And I, I just think there's so much opportunity here. Uh, I would 100% multiple times be excited about exploring this idea. Uh, this is This is a beginning for me. There is just so much nuance and, and excitement that you can create with this different medium. I, I absolutely love creating for live. Uh, that will never go away, but this will be a new exploration, I think, for me. Well, the lighting, the set, the music, and the dance is superb. Congratulations on this achievement. And I think it deserves to be viewed all year round. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really hope to bring this thing live somewhere down the road. Uh, I hope to hope to be presenting this work some more. And I, I, I just got to say, too, I am so proud of what our Terminus team and this extended family of Terminus with all the collaborators has accomplished, because this would be such a, a large feat of strength, not in these circumstances. And the, it's really a testament to everybody's talent and passion that it has still come to fruition with everything that's going on in the world right now. And I'm so pleased with what we're putting out there. Absolutely. I've fallen so in love with Terminus and the people who work there and just the insanely incredible artists that are right here in the Atlanta area that are making some of the most cutting edge art I've ever seen, let alone been a part of. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so excited to see where this takes us, of course, for the end of, of this period in time and also as we come out of it, what kind of art they'll be making because I don't think there's anything like this out there right now. And I'm, I'm so excited about it. Composer Jacob Ryan Smith and choreographer Heath Gill. Marley Was Dead to Begin With can be streamed online through January 22nd. More information about the film and how to watch it will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Alliance Theatre has produced a clever adaptation of their holiday classic, A Christmas Carol, one that can be safely enjoyed from the comfort of your car. A Christmas Carol, the live radio play, is staged as a live interactive drive-in experience Tonight is the final performance, and as a gift to Atlanta, it will be streamed on WABE and broadcast on PBA. Earlier this month, I spoke with Ben Coleman, the co-adapter and sound designer, along with Leora Morris, the stage director and fellow co-adapter. Liara explained how they were able to get approval from the Actors' Equity Union in order to produce this show. Well, I can tell you that there is a small army of folks over at the Alliance that worked tirelessly to outline COVID-compliant safety plan 
that would keep everyone safe and that responded to the artistic vision for the production that Ben and I were creating together. So everything from porta potty placement to ventilation, all of those sort of technical elements of producing not only live, but outside and not in the theater's traditional venue were outlined in this incredibly detailed document and equity felt that it was sound and protected everyone involved and gave us the approval. So it's really a huge, a huge thank you goes to all the folks at the Alliance Theater who in the middle of this unprecedented moment found a way to make live theater possible. I read that the original idea was to have actors on stage with their images on a big screen for the audience. Why did you move away from that idea? I can let Ben speak to the the sound element of it all, but I think that we discovered that we wanted to create an event that really foregrounded people's voices as a way to, to feel intimately connected to the performers and that asked people to really tune in with their ears to the experience they were having within their own car and with the people in their car and to transform their relationship to this space that, especially in Atlanta, folks spend so much time in their cars. And so how could we make sacred and make magical that space and put the focus there? So we really wanted to put the emphasis on the sonic experience that we were creating And we discovered that rather than create something really visually large that reflected a sort of more traditional visual drive-in experience that we wanted to create a structure that would support the needs of the production and then allow the video to simply reveal the actors inside that structure. So it's an, an invitation to the audience into what we're already doing rather than sort of pushing something out at them at a a big screen. So would you talk about the set? It sounds extraordinary. So, you know, as we rediscovered the text, we fell in love again with Dickens' work on the book. He was such an evocative writer in terms of sound, and and we were really excited about the, the experience being one of storytelling. So our actors have been specifically designated as storytellers. And so with the sonic experience being so foregrounded and with uh, the human voice being so key, we wanted to be able to convey the live presence of the performers, which is really, you know, one of the most important things of the experience. If We've been able to make that happen despite COVID. But we also didn't want to place the visual element of the foreground. So you can see the performers clearly in each of these uh, shipping containers that we have stacked like giant building blocks in the parking lot. Um, And then above them, another layer of stacked shipping containers have projections. You can see their faces and then occasionally some other work we'll be doing with projected text. But primarily that's just to let you know that there are living, breathing human beings up there telling you the story and to increase your connection to them. But their voices in your ears are going to be the most important things, as well as the wonderful sound effects that you'll be hearing also produced live. So it's really just about letting everyone know that that magic is happening right in front of them. The other thing that felt really important about the visual design is that we wanted the actors to be in the same predicament or situation that the audience is, which is physically separated from each other and yet, in the the act of storytelling and in the act of communing, finding a way to to, to triumph over the physical separation and feel really like we are communing. So in spite of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is creating a connection between the stage and the audience. Certainly, and hopefully between audience and audience and You know, there are moments in the show where we ask people to take a look out their windows and see who's next to them because we we haven't really had the opportunity to see a lot of folks that aren't inside our bubbles. And it feels like such a gift to be able to turn to a car full of strangers next to you 
and wave and smile and express gratitude for human beings. And especially because as Ben described in our rediscovery of the story of Dickens, we've come to understand the story as one of a man who's chosen to disconnect from other human beings and who discovers the power of connection. And so we wanted to create that experience for our audience as well, an opportunity to connect in a moment where everything has been taking us apart from each other. Ben, as a sound designer, you must have relished the role of creating this production. Would you tell us some of what we can expect? Uh, with pleasure. Um, so we have, um, we're lucky enough to feature three very talented voice actors who are voicing all of the characters um, in the production. So um, from the off, that's a really exciting prospect just to be able to see that kind of virtuosic work happening. Also, some of them will also be playing music. So we have the, they are doubling up on, on musical duties, but also with great talent. We were also very lucky to be able to recruit Stuart Gerber, who um, does a lot of work with Bent Frequency in Atlanta and also performs with the Atlanta Symphony. I've been aware of his work for a very long time, and he was curious in exploring the world of live sound effects also, uh, some people think of as Foley effects in the, in the cinema world, um, but the history stretches way back into the prehistory of radio, of course. So he will be performing all of the sound effects live using all manner of um, objects. His shipping container is packed, full of odds and ends and bizarre things. It looks like a, a steampunk explosion in his shipping container. So it, was, it has been an absolute delight to be working with him and Leora to design each of these effects to create that world. And um, I think as a radio artist, Lois, you also know that the, the, the radio magic, being able to direct voices and sounds directly into people's ears, there's amazing things that you can do there. So being able to suggest uh, Victorian England with a few objects, everyday objects, is a, is a really a thrilling prospect. Would you talk about some of those objects? Or is that a spoiler? Oh, it's not a spoiler at all. So, I mean, the great thing about this is you just grab whatever does the job best. So um, he's performing on vegetables. We're, we're getting fresh produce for him every day. A box of graham cracker crumbs makes excellent footsteps in snow if you squeeze it right up to the microphone. Um, and we also have some really performative large-scale items that have been used in radio history for these things. So wind machines... Um, we had the props department making all kinds of large, strange, hand-cranked devices to try and recreate uh, wooden wheels on cobblestones. And he also has a whole range of different flooring so that he can walk all the characters and different, different qualities of footsteps and things like that. It's, it's really fun. And um, without the screen, without the visual aspect, there's so much uh, interesting work you can do with suggesting those places and people. Mm -hmm. Leora, have you ever directed an audio theatrical performance? Not strictly audio, no, no. So it was a, it, it's a whole new and amazing world. Wow. You think you might be intrigued again? Definitely. Especially if I have a, a collaborator like Ben, I think we've had such a joyful time, not only thinking about the sounds that exist in the Victorian world, but also how we can use sound in a really poetic way to um, illustrate or suggest or evoke things like the, the different sounds of emotions um, that a character is experiencing in a given moment or the, the sound of a spirit arriving or the sound of the future. They've been really provocative questions that we've gotten to dream and imagine about. I just finished reading This Is Not My Memoir by the theater director Andre Gregory. And he talked about the impact of radio on him as a teenager. He said, with only sound and words, emphasis on words, one could create images in the mind of an audience. Early in my career, which coincided with the early days of NPR, we like to talk about radio as the theater of the mind. 
has your collaboration on this production reinforced the possibilities or the glories of theater of the mind? Absolutely. I mean, this process is very unusual in that we rehearsed uh, over Zoom, which was imperfect, but functional. And I'm in Vancouver and Ben is, was in Denver and the company was in Atlanta. And yet I could turn my screen off on my computer and close my eyes in rehearsal with my headphones in and not only be transported, but, but go on this imaginative associative ride. And my, my dreams changed at nighttime. My relationship to sound in the world changed as I walked around, but especially in this moment, I think what I'm mo most grateful for discovering is how much my mind can do in terms of creating destinations and fantastical ones. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can give audiences an experience of that as well, that we can create so much in our imaginations, even as adults, in the way that kids do all the time. Yeah, it's so thrilling to think that each night there'll be hundreds of co-collaborators because so much of that imaginative work will be being done by each person. How so? Um, just because I think with the, the world of listening, there is, there's so much internal imaginative work that is going to be done. Everyone, I mean, I think that theatre is always about suggesting uh, rather than showing everything. But when we're working with such a sonic experience, everyone's going to have their own, their very own universe that they'll be inhabiting. Ben Coleman, co-adapter and sound designer, along with Leora Morris, stage director and fellow co-adapter for the Alliance Theatre's production of A Christmas Carol. WABE and PBA will broadcast the Alliance production of A Christmas Carol, the live radio play, tonight at 9. Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? wabe.org slash city lights is the place to find today's interview as well as segments from previous shows we invite you to search stream and share your favorite show at wabe.org slash city lights and thanks for listening this is city lights on wabe I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With the holidays just around the corner, we think an ideal gift for someone you love is the gift of reading. 44th and 3rd Bookseller is a multicultural, family-owned bookstore headquartered in Atlanta. On their website, they have an entire list of 2020 holiday selections. This past summer, I spoke with founders Cheryl Lee and Warren Lee about some of their reading suggestions. Warren first told me how they came up with the name of their store. 44th comes from the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama. Ah. We felt that uh, it would be important in establishing a bookstore that we represent the writings and the history of Barack Obama and his presidency in the bookstore. We had an experience uh, visiting Chicago in 2009 where we went to a, a big box bookstore and found that they had no books on Barack Obama, even though he was a Chicago person and he was the president at that time of the United States. So that's where 44th came from. And then the third represents the three categories of books that we carry in our store. The categories are life, literature, and legacy. And life books are children's books and international books, cookbooks, art and entertainment, self-help books. Literature is fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and classic books of African-American literature. And legacy is history, autobiographies, religion. 
So that's how we came up with the name and how it's relevant. There's a whole lot that went into the naming of your books. It's, it's mind boggling. I, I can't believe that there were no books about Barack Obama in a Chicago bookstore, albeit a big box one in 09. Yes, it surprised us too. I called the manager over. Um, there was a section of the store where they were highlighting local interests. And, you know, they had books on, you know, Scandinavian people of note in uh, Chicago and Italian people of note and Jewish people of note. And these were large collections of books. They were presented as you first walked into the store to the left. And we were there because uh, we were visiting and one of my wife, uh, Carol's cousins wanted to um, buy a book for us that was written by a gentleman who was a, a real estate developer who had assisted Harold Washington um, in his campaign to become the first black mayor of Chicago. So that was our purpose for going there. And we looked in that section of local interest for this book and didn't find it. And coincidentally, we didn't find any books on Barack Obama as well. So we called the manager of the store over and I asked him, I said, look at this section and tell me what's missing. He looked and, you know, I told him, you know, this is Chicago. If President Obama was visiting and came into the store with his friends, he would not see that he was a person of interest, local interest in Chicago. So the point for me was, uh, and I mentioned this to Cheryl, and she agreed, that we would take a interest ourselves in making sure that the history, the accomplishments, and the legacy of Barack and Michelle Obama would continue through the collection that we had in our store. In the age of Amazon and Barnes and Noble, the decision to run an independent bookshop clearly is not motivated by profit. I read that this concept was born out of your master's thesis, Cheryl, on the plight of independent bookstores. Would you tell us more about that? This was a paper that I had to do or decided to do as my thesis when I was in graduate school because I'd always had an interest in independent bookstores. And a matter of fact, it was something that I always wanted to do. And I felt that was the perfect opportunity to do the research on a bookstore like that and try and determine whether or not a store, an independent bookstore could be viable in a environment where we did have, you know, at that time, because this was 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, when we had so many uh, big booksellers. And it was interesting that even then, 30 years ago, it was still predicting, there was research predicting that there were ways in which independent bookstores could still thrive because independent booksellers offer different types of opportunities to our customers. I mean, it, we provide a community to our consumers to support local communities. We do curation, our curation of the types of books that we, we collect are much more diverse and a bigger selection than what you could get at say a bigger bookseller like a Barnes and Noble or Amazon even. And convening is where we started to promote our stores as a intellectual center for customers convening at our stores. So the research showed that if we could do these types of things, we could be successful. We may not get rich, which isn't why, like you said, we're in the business. We're in the business because we love books and we want to promote the books that we sell. And as I said, you know, and, and you know as well, we sell primarily African-American and African books of the diaspora, the African di diaspora. So that was primarily our uh, motivation 30 years ago when we looked at, first looked into doing this. Were there particular indie bookshops you had in mind, sort of as templates when 
you created 44th and 3rd? Well, there's a Marcus bookstore in uh, Oakland, California. They represent that they're the oldest black bookstore in the United States. I went to school in San Francisco 30 years ago. At that time, they had two locations, one in San Francisco and one in Oakland. So I was always impressed by, you know, their um, status in the community, their assortment of books. I had a young daughter at the time. We always went there to buy books for her. And it was uh, a good place to meet and talk to people about like-minded subjects. So Marcus Books was one. Another was Kofa Books in Washington, D.C., right across the street from Howard University um, campus. And uh, my daughter was the one who actually made us aware of, of that bookstore. So we started going there every time we visited D.C. And it was impressive. They had a a model where there was the bookstore and cafe as well. Um, but their book collection was was strong and they were well supported by the community. So that was impressive. And then the third is the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Their store holds a wide variety of uh, black books. So again, when we go to DC, we go there and look at what they have and also talk to the staff there about, you know, what's what sells and what doesn't sell, but they have a very good displays in a wide variety. So those are three that come to mind as places that, you know, we were, we were looking to emulate to some degree. Oh, indeed. That whole museum, that institution is simply a marvel. Your website offers a selection of audiobooks that encourage visitors to self-educate about racism and anti-racism and amplify black voices. Do you think there are advantages to listening to some stories and reading others? I think that there are. Me, for me personally, I prefer to read because I I, I prefer to, to actually hold a book and and read it and I like that, that feel of holding that book. Now, there are people, and I know uh, we have a book club as well with the store, and uh, some of my members, they prefer to, to do the audio because it's, it saves them, you know, it gives them more time. And so they get a lot from that because it gives them op the opportunity to, uh, when they have free time like that, when you're commuting or if you're, Say you're just doing something around the house and you want to listen to the story from that aspect of the audiobook. So I think there's just a difference in how you want to enjoy the book or enjoy the story. And like I said, I, I think it's just preference. I think that some of it also has to do with the way we are wired. Cheryl, I, I'm with you. I love holding a book. I like rereading sentences and maybe turning back a few pages if there's something I need to consult. But other people may be better at retaining ideas through audio consumption. It's, I think, also how we're wired. Would you please tell us about your Flavor of the Month section on the website and a few of the titles you offer? We try to focus on something that is relevant to that month for us, for example, Juneteenth. So we, we wanted to celebrate Juneteenth by showing books that would be relevant to that subject. My daughter... Elise Lee, who is in graduate school at UGA, she is actually the one that does this and she does a pretty good job. So we just try to choose books that, you know, with everything going on in the society today and in the media today, we felt that these books would be relevant to what we're seeing. And this is what is so welcome about your role as curators and how visitors and consumers benefit from that. I have so enjoyed this conversation. 
Cheryl Lee, Warren Lee, good luck with moving into the West End and your new expanded space. And thank you for talking with us. Thank, thank you. you. Co-owners of 44th and 3rd Bookseller, Cheryl and Warren Lee. You can find their 2020 holiday selections on their website, 44thandthirdbookseller.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we bring you the traditional Christmas Eve special from King's College, Cambridge, a festival of nine lessons and carols. City Lights will return on January 4th. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. Eight more followers will take me to the next round number. I'm at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Do follow along. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Wishing you safe and happy holidays. And thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.